You've worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com slash aware. Terms apply. Mino Line Media presents the Olivia Fox Podcast. Welcome to the Olivia Fox Podcast for yet another episode. I am she, she is me. Thank you so so much for tuning in. Y'all know the drill. You have to tell a friend to tell a friend that we are here. But not only that, I actually want to hear what you think. You can hit me up, oliviafoxfix at gmail.com. I'm all over social media. You can reach out and let us know what you like. Maybe there's a topic or a subject you want me to, you know, get into. You know, I loved getting in stuff. So just let me know. You know, I got to know how we're doing over here, out here in these streets. Well, it's another episode of the Olivia Fox Show. And y'all know I'm all about my people. I'm all about the upliftment of black and brown folk, especially my African-American women who are doing big things. And today I have the absolute pleasure to meet someone who I consider a trailblazer. I really do. She has spent over 30 years, I don't want age, but over 30 years in being a public servant. She's held some very high, high, uh, positions in uh, policing. She was the um, former, you guys probably have seen her on CNN, MSNBC, NBC Nightly News. She was the first African-American woman to hold down the position of chief of police in Charlottesville, Virginia. And some of y'all might be like, Charlottesville? Y'all remember Charlottesville when they was down there cutting the food with Unite the Right. Yes, you remember now? Okay. So she was the magnificent, the head person in charge of holding things down in Charlottesville. And she's gone on. She's a lecturer. She gives back. She talks to the community. And today, it's so important for me to have her here because, you know, there's a subject matter about policing in America that never changes. It never goes away. So I always like to get folk to come in to give their insight and feedback on that subject. So without further ado, please welcome to the show, Dr. Rochelle Brackney or Chief. Hello. Hello. And thank you so much for having me. I don't know how to follow that dynamic intro. That's for sure. I, I am the queen of hype. <laughs> I am the queen of hype. Thank you so much for making time to come here on this little podcast here. I appreciate you so much. Every time I have folk on this show, I always start off with, how did you decide to be where you are in terms of profession? Have you always wanted to be in law enforcement? Was it something you just kind of fell in? Let us Tell us a little bit about your, your journey. So I'm going to first start by saying, quit playing. I don't know any Black folk who have sat around and dreamed about being in law enforcement or being a police officer, particularly Black women. Like, that was not imprinted in our DNA. That's not where we come from, right? There was a whole lot of other things that we were pushed towards, and policing and law enforcement was not going to be on that top 10. So... <laughs> I'm going to dispel that myth right from the beginning. Um, I fell into policing. You know, now as a more mature and seasoned woman, I'd like to say I was led into policing, you know, that that's where I was supposed to be. That's where I was uniquely, the work I was uniquely designed to do. But I fell into policing because I was just out of school, right? So I'm just out of college and I'm one of six kids and I wasn't employed at the time. And so, my mother, and if you know anything about moms of color, black moms, they yes. don't play. You, when you are in their household, you're either working or in school. school. Period. Absolutely. So, <laughs> so I wasn't working. I was just out of school. And, you know, they hadn't invented the, the gap year for black folks yet where, you know, you get to find yourself between, you know, your career and, and your, your education. And my mother would bring home all of these applications for civil service jobs. Um, and I would fill them all out. And because we know civil service jobs were those jobs that we, we kept trying to get into. 
they had great benefits. You had union protections. I'm from Pittsburgh, so unions were really big in the Pittsburgh community. And there weren't a lot of um, individuals getting into these policing or civil service jobs. And interestingly enough, they were hiring based under affirmative action criteria. And that's a whole nother story. Whole nother story. We have to come back to that one on another day. That's right. I I don't have time for Clarence and Miss Jenny today. But so, so they were hiring under affirmative action and you know, I'm multi-ethnic. I am, you know, mixed race. I identify as black. And when I went to fill out my application, there was this, this woman behind the civil service counter. And she says to me, and I'm like, Hey, there's nothing there for, you know, someone who's mixed race. And she said, baby girl, you are checking black on this. (laughs) And we dealt with it. And I said, yes, ma'am. And we kept it moving. So I, fell into it. And it was just based on a fluke of filling out the applications and doing well on all the civil service exams that, you know, in 1980, um, (laughs) I started my career in policing and and have remained there. I stayed there for 38 years. Wow. That is amazing. And I imagine coming back in 1980, because I'm right there with you. Things had to be really, really rough, not only for a woman, but a woman of color. Tell us a little bit about your experience, because, of course, you know, I've done my research, so I know, you know, a little bit about your journey and the whole thing in Charlottesville. But when you started out in the mid 80s, what was that like for a woman of color? So, you know, um, I actually started in the early 80s, right? I barely limped into the 1980s. um, And. It was, a, it was really interesting. So first of all, women in of themselves were not welcome onto the police department. They didn't want women, period, right? The men didn't want them and the men's wives didn't want them on the police department. Um, and it was for, for no other reason than the misogynistic, chauvinistic ideas they have about women and our abilities to perform in the policing field, in the policing profession. And, you know, I'm, I'm 21 years old when I start. I'm five foot seven. I'm 120 something pounds. I'm trying to remember those days of being 127 pounds again. But the point is, you know, I'm I'm not necessarily large in stature. And prior to the affirmative action rulings in Pittsburgh, you had to be five foot 10 and 170 or 80 pounds to get on the department. So it eliminated most women and men were larger. So you have this, you know, petite woman coming onto the police department who's barely 21 years old, could barely have just purchased my first weapon um, at that age of 21. And it was difficult. I remember my first days in the academy, I had a male on one side of me and another on the other side. And the first thing that uh, one of the the other recruits called me, started calling me bubblegum. You know, he's like, you're young and you know, you're, you're, you're just brand new. And another guy literally didn't know my name and said, you know, what are you going to do out in these streets? You've probably never done anything in these streets except cross one. And that is the way they, they, they greeted me from day one. And there were these assumptions about who I was and what I could be. Now, we'll talk about this on another time, but both of those gentlemen failed out of the academy. They didn't even make it through the academy. So, talked all that mess and couldn't even get through. Right? I mean, a lot a lot of mess um and and couldn't get through um the most basic of trainings. And you know, and it was also difficult because when you want to talk about misogyny and chauvinistic behaviors, they were also very homophobic. So that the only Mm -hmm. women that they really seemed to um, ingratiate into the police department were women that they would call, you know, softball hitters or women who they didn't deem very feminine, women who didn't wear makeup or did their hair. Or if you did your hair and makeup, they thought you were looking for a boo. And I'm like, I'm not trying to get booed up with any of y'all. But the point being is, it was extremely difficult. There was a lot of sexual harassment, a lot of racial discrimination, 
um, a lot of, you know, misogyny and very chauvinistic behaviors um, that we had to tolerate. How did you, what, how did you get through that? I mean, what, what is the mindset to keep you going under those types of conditions? Do you remember a point in the beginning of your career where you were like, I can't hang, I'm not doing this. Or were you always like, I'm going to do this because they think I can't. So I think it, it ebbs and flows, right? There are days when you're like, oh, you know what? My hair is up, earrings are on, right? We, we're going to go at this, right? You are not going to push me out. And then there are other days when you just don't know where to turn because your literal life depends on these people accepting you into a profession that they don't want you to be in. So there were days when I'm like, oh, you're not putting me out, right? I have a right to be in this space. I've earned my right here. I've scored well on these tests, physical agility, firearms tests, self-defense, defensive tactics. I'm holding my own against you six foot five, bruh. And I, you're not making me leave. You will break before I bend. And that's the mindset I started having. You'll break before I bend. Love it. I love that. You know what? That's a great title for a book. Oh, look at you. You will break before I bend. Girl, I'm going to put that back here. And look, in 10 minutes, I've been forgot it. Okay. <laughs> so you go on through your career. You're working hard, doing what you have to do, and you become the head person in charge. How did that come about for you in Pittsburgh? What 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 was the process with that? So it was it, it was a challenge. You have to test into certain positions, right? Um, so again, when you start to talk about our abilities to perform as women, as people of color, we can do the work. It's not like we can't do the work. It's will you allow me the opportunity, right? Or will you continue to exclude me for no other reasons than, you know, my demographics that I can't change or do anything about and nor would I want to. So what I did is um, I I always had a mindset that you will, you will be forced to exclude me. I'm never going to exclude myself. So I started studying my profession. I started studying my craft. And I mean, from the 1700s to that modern day period. So I understood the nature of policing, the police profession, where it could go, where it had been. And I studied the laws, I studied the statutes, the union, you know, our contracts and all of the policies and procedures. And I figured if I knew that stuff backwards and forwards, I could then go through the ranks and be promoted. And that's what I did. I worked my way through every single rank, all the way up, working every position, um, in the city of Pittsburgh, eventually the chief of, you know, George Washington University and then to Charlottesville. But here's what I have to also say, too, is um, you can't be afraid to invest in yourself. You can't wait for your organization to send you to some professional development course or to some other career. Every one of my degrees I got as a non-traditional student going back to school in my 50s to pursue my doctorate, my master's and things of that nature. So I made sure there was never a reason for them to say no to me, even though they said no a whole lot of times. I just made sure there was never a reason they could say no. Um, and then after the 30 something years of being in policing in the, in the city of Pittsburgh is when I slowly made my way to Charlottesville. And that is a story in of itself. Girl, when I saw, I've seen a couple of videos with you explaining that whole situation and what you went through. First of all, let me just commend you for your courage because people just don't know what folk be going through. And I don't think it's it, it's it's necessarily a woman thing or, or, or a race thing, but people go through storms and, and, and have to uh, be in full survival mode just to just to live. And so you go through all of this in Pittsburgh and in your mind, are you thinking, okay, I've worked, I've put in the time, I've studied. When I get to Charlottesville, even though it was a tragic situation that you came from under with the Unite Right, were you like, okay, it's, it might be different. I'm going to have a few challenges, but I've put in the work. I'm good. I mean, did you ever get a chance to just say, 
I'm good. No, <laughs> no. And I thought I would, right? So you would think after the entire world watches in horror about the events that unfolded of the Unite the Right, right? The tiki torches, the swastikers, you know, blood and soil, Jews will not replace us. You know, they beat DeAndre Harris um, in a garage, a black male, and circle him and just pummel him. The police are watching while these things go on and not defending anyone who looks differently than them, not defending anyone. Um, eventually it culminates in the death of Heather Heyer. So I'm thinking this city has got to have a shame level, right? Like if nothing else, you want to get this right moving forward. And this would be the opportunity that if anybody pushed back against police reform or the way you would want to do it, all you have to do is hold up the events of August 11th and 12th of 2017 and say, hey, listen, we don't have any choices. This is a reckoning that we need to address. So I went in with the mindset, particularly since they had a black female mayor at the time who had come out of the activist community, who was screaming for these police reform issues and had been doing so for decades, like this would be the, the time, this would be the moment. Right. Um, and it, it never ever um, came to fruition. As a matter of fact, within my first days um, I'm not even being confirmed for counsel and people are screaming at me. Um, and, and, and typically white liberal progressives, which then, mm. you know, once they were allowed to do that, then everybody felt comfortable um, doing those kinds of things. I was immediately called an affirmative action desk jockey quota hire who had displaced white men who were more qualified. And I'm thinking to myself, I came from a major city where I ran every division there was. I just had come from George Washington University as the chief. I hold a doctorate um, and two other degrees from like Carnegie Mellon University. Like I'm from like these places. I've run SWAT teams. I've graduated from the FBI National Academy, bomb schools, secret service. And I'm the affirmative action quota hire. We're the person, right. you know, once I eventually left, who replaced me, had a high school diploma a white male who, right? right? The current of chief course. in Charlottesville just got his, his master's, right? Who replaced me. So like, this is like, and I'm the affirmative action hire, right? Who's not qualified. Um, right. So I never had a honeymoon phase. Um, I've talked about this my first couple of days. Um, I'm meeting new people. I'm walking through the halls and you know, I, I don't have that Southern accent. I'm from Pittsburgh and we're in central Virginia where, you know, that Confederate flag statue stuff is, is for real. And someone greeted me right from the beginning and said, you know, I don't drink any effing lattes, right? And I vote Republican. And so that was my experience and pretty much my experience for the next three and a half years. Um, you didn't even get a chance to just come in and take your shoes off and get acclimated. Right? The devil just hit you right away. Even with the, even with the uniform, um, which was interesting, you know, people would put on, on all of our social media, she's ashamed to wear the police uniform. You know, what, what does she think? She's a fashion model in Paris. So they talked about the way I dressed. What was interesting is the reason I didn't wear a police uniform is that we didn't have a police uniform for me to wear. We still have issues getting women uniforms. Are you kidding we me? Right. It took literally three and a half months to get my full uniform in. Three and a half, four months to get my full uniform in. But still didn't this have a female uniform. This is just mind boggling to me. This is not like in the 50s or the 70s or the 90s. I mean, it's just, I, I, I'm not surprised. But it, it just angers me so. It just angers me so. Yes. My God. We still don't have maternity uniforms for women. So women can't wear maternity clothes. There's no maternity um, belt that you can wear or, or changes. You have to get a nylon. I mean, it's a whole lot of things that's still going on for a profession that has been in existence now since slave patrols. And that's a whole nother podcast. Um Catch right. me on my, my one right. next next week when I'll talk about slave patrols. 
I'm going to be listening too. I'm going to be listening because most of the time when you bring that up, people are like, what? Like, boo, you got to read. You got to do a little research, yes, you know? Yes. So when 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 you were at in Charlottesville as the chief, um, obviously there were a lot of things happening, um, a lot of misogyny, a lot of racism from police. And so the way I got it was that you started these investigations. So do you think, and I already know the answer, but do you think you were getting too close to uncovering and unveiling the true essence of that police department? And that's why they were like, oh, we got to get rid of her. Yeah, I mean, that's exactly right. As a matter of fact, I started an investigation, uncovered a lot of things. Officers were exchanging nude videos of women, um, nude pictures of themselves, you know, things of that nature, very sexually oriented things. They were making racist comments about black recruits. Um, they were engaging in, in excessive force and violence. Um, there were death threats against other officers. There were death threats against me discovered in these texts that they should literally take me out and let God sort it out. Um, you just evil. I mean, it just, it really was evil. There were, when I say that the, the litany of abuses, um, making fun of individuals, um, and oftentimes talking about being violent towards black community and black folks and, and shielding themselves so the body cameras couldn't see it. And then they exchange videos and things of that nature. So I started firing them. Um, and next thing I know, I'm talking to my city manager and saying, hey, we need to bring the DOJ into to Charlottesville. You think Minneapolis has got a problem? You think, you know, all these other places have issues? We got us some problems in here. And next thing I know, I'm being booted as disruptive. All the things that, you know, no one gets along with me. I, that's that's what they do. It's, it's that's the what, she's got an attitude. She's incompetent. She's that's right. She's not a good leader. All that BS. Right. Yes. And then you suffer from you know you get as we you know we call it blackballing. We don't get blackballed. We get whiteballed. Right. There's no black folks in control of all of this. There are literally a bunch of folks who don't look like us determining our fate. And what's so interesting is from the moment they decided to let me go. Um, for no cause. They literally said it's a no cause separation. We're not going to renew your contract. What's so interesting is I've not been able to be hired in policing since. Have not been able Are to be you? hired, have been turned down repeatedly for jobs. But also, the officers I fired and the ones who conspired to have me fired, they went to other departments. They are fully employed with their histories of violence, misogyny racism, xenophobia, homophobic behaviors, they are all employed as police officers. So somebody saw their history and still said, okay, come work for us. And we see that now, even more so, police officers involved in shootings, killing people, tons and tons of different uh, uh, people bringing cases against them, and they still are able to work. They'll leave one jurisdiction and somebody else will hire them. I mean, I think it was the the guy that shot Breonna Taylor, didn't he? I mean, so after you go through all this and they fire you and they begin the the the, the character assassinations because you know that's that's the next thing. You know, it's it's just little steps in what they do and how they move and how they operate. Did you get like, I am done? with this, with this, I'm done with policing. I'm done with this career. I'm going to pivot. I'm doing something else. What was your mindset at that point? So, cause I would be like, you know what? <laughs> so I was reeling, I mean, reeling from all of this, right? Because you're right. The character assassination came next. The city manager started writing op eds in the local paper about me. Um, saying that I was disruptive, that everyone was going to leave, everyone was going to leave, right? Um, city men or city directors were going to leave. My officers were all going to go. Like, and then the the you know the council individuals started writing those, saying, you know, what do we do? Do we get rid of the chief, or do we just keep the officers and try and work with them, or do we replace them? I'm like, well, you get rid of the officers, and that was not the decision. So. Um, 
they then became a, a, a you want to talk character assassination. They started putting things in press releases, op eds, um, in council meetings. They the, the city manager and and teams and the council members started in their council meetings saying how disruptive I was and that they needed to get rid of me and had I had been a problem for a long time and this wasn't new. Um, so it was so interesting about it. And there were times when I'm like, no, but you know what I said and said I was going to do? What's I'm that? done playing. So I just filed a $10 million lawsuit against them. Boop. But then what happens? <laughs> Girl. Now, you, 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 I got receipts. When I tell you I have receipts, I have the videos of the officers. I have the text messages of the officers. I have all of the information. I have the investigations. I've got it all. Like I got receipts. Like we went to Applebee's receipts, and I don't even go to Applebee's. Right. Um, <laughs> but I've got receipts. You didn't pull a Monique from uh, Housewives of Potomac with the folder, did you? That's it. I have got receipts. So we file a lawsuit, twelve separate counts of this, um, of the behaviors, identifying where they literally targeted me to get rid of me. They were having secret meetings to get rid of me. I pull it all out. I mean, I lay it out there like an outfit on first day of school. And I have a 85-year-old white male judge of course, who dismisses all 12 counts. And his comments basically were, yes, they did everything that you said they did, but I don't believe it to be illegal. And more importantly, he then goes on to say, to the effect of, I just need to put my big girl pants on. I knew what I was getting into when I got into the job and the profession. So that in other words, I just needed to suck it up and deal with it. So, oh yeah, God. so that's where it is. I mean, we're on appeal and who knows where the appeal will go. Wherever God takes it, God takes it. But, um, yeah. What about the feds? Did they ever think, did the Department of Justice, did, I mean, are they, did they look at it? Did they even, I mean, nothing. Nothing. The Virginia has the equivalent, the Attorney General's office has an equivalent of the Department of Justice. I took it to the Attorney General's office. Again, you know what they said to me? Yes, you filed all this stuff. Uh-huh. You know, we're not going to look at it. But Glenn Youngkin is our our, our governor here. And so he's not interested in any sort of police reform. He's too busy with his CRT anti-woke agenda. Um, right. I took it to the, I tweeting it to the DOJ all the time. Nothing, nothing, not a single movement. In fact, the new chief made a comment that said, oh, he had heard a bunch of noise, noise about the way officers performed in Charlottesville. And after six months here, he's confident it was just noise. Right. Cover up, cover up, distract, deflect, you know, deny. I, you know, I, I'm, I'm not surprised, you know, and and people are always like, well, you know, just get over the, the race thing. Just get over it. And they don't understand. Folks don't understand that these things are still happening because it's with it's built within the system. So in your in your mind, can police reform even happen? What do you, I mean, do you think that's even possible? Because from what I see you still have this resistance and now that the, the the environment and the the way the country is moving and where we are in terms of politics and the things that they're they're doing now in these red states it just seems like it's getting worse so is there a possibility for police reform in your opinion um no <laughs> no um after being in the system for more than 38 years it is not a system that can be reformed right? It's like saying we're going to reform institutional racism. Like you cannot right. reform a system that is built on a premise of hatred and violence and, and, and racism, right? Supremacy. So it's built on that. And what I try and tell people when you talk about police reform is, or reimagining it, think of it as a puzzle. You've got all these pieces and it's put together and it presents one way. You talk about reforming that puzzle, you still have the same pieces. It's just going to look a like a different picture. And so right. you need to basically get rid of the picture now. Someone's going to say, oh, my goodness, she's an abolitionist. She's like, get rid of the, of the of police, get rid of this. What I'm suggesting is we need to imagine 
something differently than the current construct of policing. Not reimagine it. Imagine for the first time what it could be if we were really interested in public safety. The problem is this. Who is allowed to feel safe in this community is always going to be the issue, right? Who gets right. to feel safe? Who is allowed to thrive under these systems versus who gets to barely survive or not, as we know with the number of police killings that are out there, who doesn't survive under these systems. So I think there is opportunity for us to do things differently where this formalized policing or law enforcement is very different than what it has grown out of from the 1700s to what it exists till today in 2023. There hasn't been much of a difference between really what the slave patrols were required to do, right? And what we do in some ways today. Slave patrols were all about containing um, property, right? Making sure property right. was didn't run away or that there were no uprisings or, or, or revolts. And they did it through racial terror, right? And we do things very similar today. Policing is built on a system of racial terror. And that's the only way you can control 335 million folks in the United States is through racial terror. Right. So And fear, because we see politicians using that as well. Fear. If we don't do it this way, then everything's just going to, because you see it now, you know, oh, the big cities and the crime and this, that, as if, you know, there's no crime in the red states. Um, but yeah, it's, it's all fear driven. So it's just like, where do we go from here? I mean, where, where as a society, where do we go? Is there hope? Because a lot of people are feeling that when George Floyd happened, we really thought, I marched in D.C. practically every day. We really thought there was going to be some change. But it seems like it's just gone full circle and we're back, right back to where we were. As a matter of fact, I think it's even worse because now they're labeling basic human rights as woke or, you know, you're agitators or, you know, uh, you know, stop, stop being a victim, that whole thing. So it, it seems like it's, it, we've stepped back instead of going forward after George Floyd, people are still dying. And, you know, we've got this whole line, the blue line, regardless of color, because we've seen that doesn't matter People are not, you know, these police officers are not going to step over this blue line. And I think, you know, one thing that people um, need to understand, it seems, and I could be wrong, that when things happen, the police are policing themselves. It seems like they would have an outside person to come in and say, okay, well, these are the facts and this is what happened. And so this is what we're going to do. But so many times people feel like nothing's going to happen because the police are policing themselves or the union's going to step in and kind of just kind of cover them, protect them. What are your thoughts? So you're right. I was hopeful after, it, it, it's sad that after the public execution of George Floyd and the outcry across the nation and the world, like it just didn't stay in the, the continental United States. It was across the world. I was hopeful for the first time that we might be able to couple with all of these other events leading to that moment, get some sort of change going. But you know what has happened is the profession of policing, of law enforcement, has figured out a way to hold its breath while we collectively catch our breath from each incident. You don't hear anything about Tyree Nichols anymore. We haven't heard about Tyree Nichols in forever, right? Right. Because we have now become anesthetized, numb to these police killings. And we can just name them one after the other, right? So another. there's the police killings. And now what we now have is sanctioned citizen killings, right? With these stand your ground laws. And more and more, you look at um, A.J. Jones or, um, you know, Ralph Yarl, where the community is saying, you know what? If the police don't kill you, we got it. We got it. Right. And we're going to be protected under these stand your ground laws because we feel fear or we're afraid of the color of your skin. So I don't right. believe that we're going to ever 
get to where we need to be. Because if we couldn't do it in that moment, if you couldn't do it with Tyree Nichols, where you could then say the system is corrupt. We have black officers doing this to another black individual. The only way that can happen is if the system is corrupt. And that system will corrupt everything that it touches. And you're right. We can't police ourselves, right? Now, here's here's where you could have it. The problem is, is that we police ourselves on a very individual level as an internal affairs level in each department. That's not how the Bar Association does it. That's not how the Medical Association does it. They have these state bars or these state medicals that they do the examinations and then they look and say, you know what? This person is going to lose their license. We could have those same kinds of things, but we're not interested. Um, Case in point, I tried to decertify seven different officers in Charlottesville for domestic violence, sexual assault, excessive force, you name it, right? Lying on their police reports, um, being arrested for excessive force and violence. Not one of those seven were decertified. There's always some built-in legislative or administrative loophole that allows them to keep their jobs. And so it's much easier to get rid of somebody like me than it is to get rid of someone who is going to be backed by a system that supports them. So I don't know. The answer is definitely not that. There is a push towards getting rid of qualified immunity, which means that the officer is shielded individually from civil liability. But that'll never go through because officers aren't the only ones who get qualified immunity. Your legislators get qualified immunity. Your governors. Right. Look what's happening with the Supreme right. Court. Government right? gets qualified immunity. So if you get rid of it for officers, you then say, you know what? I'm not protected by it either. And you know they don't want that. Right. It's just, it's just, uh, it's mind boggling because one thing, it, it just trickles. It's like a, a ripple effect. You don't want to affect you know, do anything with police because then, oh, well, then we'll have to, you know, maybe, you know, we'll have to be held accountable for actions and we can't have that, you know? So it, it's just unnerving. I've had a conversation about insurance, like doctors, they have insurance, malpractice insurance. Wouldn't it just be logical once you become a police officer, you have to pay a certain amount for insurance. And if something happens where you're found guilty or you're the one liable, then it would come from you, your pockets, not the city, but you. So I think people would be more likely to think, okay, I'm going to have to give up my pension. I'm going to have to give up my salary. I'm not going to be able to work in another jurisdiction if I pull this trigger. They might think twice. But it doesn't even seem like no one, it just doesn't seem like anybody's trying to even think about any types of solutions. You have one side where everybody's, you know, what's wrong? What's wrong? This needs to be fixed, but no solutions. Then you have the other side where they know what the problem is, but they're not trying to fix it. So as a result, nothing gets resolved. People keep dying at the hands of police. And I think the general community, our community specifically, we just don't have that trust for law enforcement. So where do what do you see the future for American policing, because I'm just like, well, what are we supposed to do? Right. So so the insurance one is first is interesting, right? I think you should be required to get the insurance prior to hire, right? I can't buy a car unless I can prove I have insurance to cover the car, right? I go to buy a car. They're like, you don't have insurance. It's not leaving the lot. They're not approving you, right? So there's things that could happen. I've advocated for insurance. It's a great market. There's about 735,000 officers. Anywhere they, it goes between 730 and 800,000 officers. Do you know the market? If you already know you've got 800,000 folks who've got to be insured, that tells you something. And so if you can't get insurance, just like you can't get it because of your driving history, or you can't maintain it, like you've got to renew it every year, Exactly. Right. So I think there is some th- that is a legitimate solution to if you want to leave qualified immunity, doctors have to have insurance. Your attorneys have to have, you know, malpractice insurance or malfeasance insurance. You've got to insure your car. You've got to insure 
you know, I need extra insurance for my computer in my home if I want it covered, right? Right. So there is a solution there. What does the future for modern day policing look like? You know, it can be very dismal. I I have moved into academia full time now. Um, and I'm designing a course in the fall called Policing Black Bodies. And one of the anchor books that I'm using is called Our Enemies in Blue. Um, and another one is, you know, Michelle Alexander's New Jim Crow. And I've been using her book for years now um, to teach courses. The future is in what we demand. Like, what do we demand? We know that when we collectively come together for very long periods of time, things change. Even when there's people who don't want to change. An example is the Affordable Care Act, Obamacare, right? Folks like came together and said, oh no, you will not take away my health care. And it it stayed in place, right? Even folks who didn't want it because they thought it was like, oh, I don't want that Obamacare, but I'll take the Affordable Care Act. I'm like, okay, boo, whatever you need to do. (laughs) Right. (laughs) When... They started taking, when Roe v. Wade was overturned, they threw folks out of office, right? Voted them right out immediately. What we have to say is this has to be of interest for more than just people who are black and brown. This is the time when our allies have to form alliances, as I always say, and then they become your advocates. They're the ones who are willing to leverage their personal professional reputations and money and resources to make it happen. If the people who are in the majority, who were white or white appearing, were leveraging for this, we would have a change. We, we would It's kind of like gun control. It's, it's like gun control. The same thing. You know, it's just if we had, if we came together collectively instead of being, you know, everyone having their own agenda. And I think it's purposely done. I think it's purposely methodically done to put the division because they know if we get together we're very powerful and things can change. So why would we ever want to have the general public get along? Absolutely. It's just- Absolutely. It benefits your politicians for us to be divisive and have wedge issues, right? Because as long as you keep me busy with the wedge issue, you know, then that right hand don't know what the left hand's doing. And then that's when you find out, again, if we want to go back to the Supreme Court, as long as I keep you busy- with crazy stuff, then you're never going to look at the fact that I'm taking exotic trips, that I'm selling my properties, right? Three days, Gorsuch did it. He sold it, I think, seven to nine days. He'd been trying to sell it for two years to a, a billionaire after that, a benefactor of the Supreme Court decisions. You have Robert's wife making tens of millions of dollars at, you know, as part of the law firms who are appearing in front of the Supreme Court. And like I said, and, and Uncle uh, <laughs> Uncle Thomas, <laughs> Uncle Ruckus. And Uncle Thomas and, and Miss Jenny, <laughs> right? They are living a billionaire lifestyle versus one of servant leadership. And I'm not supposed to, I'm not suggesting you poor because you're in public service, right? I was in public service for 38 years. I'm not trying to be poor either. But the point is, I haven't been invited to any cruise ships. Well, I ain't going on one anyway, right? But you know how those turn out right. when we get on boats. So, right. <laughs> I'm not going anyway. But the point being is, if we really want change, there has to be those conversations where bodies are put on the line that don't look like us, who have something to lose. And until that moment happens, it's never going to be, um, you know, it's never going to change for people who look like us. And that is a sad state of affairs. Now, there are lots of places who think about it. You know, I think it's Promise Georgia. Um, where Black communities come together and creating their own Black communities um, within those spaces. Um, So there are things that I think we can do, and there's a lot of political chatter around what happens if we all coalesce. Because if we all coalesce, there's enough in the Black community to to make a change. But we all have to change. And I mean, we have to do it. And you can't have the Candace Owens. You can't have the Tim Scotts. You can't have the, you know, the Clarence Thomases of the world. You can't have the Byron Donaldsons. And I'm not suggesting you can't be a conservative and have conservative ideas, but you can't be the type of people who appear to hate what they look in the mirror every day and see. Exactly. 
Exactly. And I think we're so splintered off because within our own race, we've got, you know, a class clash. Uh, you know, uh, I think Chris Rock did stand up about it where you have the haves and the have nots. And then when certain people get to a certain level, then they don't want to not only deal with the have nots, but anybody um, that doesn't have the wealth. So you have that within our own community. The color issue that we're still tripping off of skin color. You know, it, it's just all these different splinters of problems that we have within our own community. And it's just, you know, on top of the Candace Owens. So it's hard to even see, and this is so negative, but it's hard to see us really come together collectively because we're so splintered apart and distracted. And I, again, I think it's purposely done. So where does Dr. Rochelle see herself in five years? Because I know I, I heard something about a book, <laughs> but where do you see yourself? So, yes, I am writing. Um, I'm writing my first book. It's called The Bruising of America, When Black, White, and Blue Collide. So I'm starting that. Love it. Um, I love that title. As you know or may know, and this may be coming out here first, we're relaunching Black Arm of the Law on uh, this exact same media platform here. So I'll be taking that over from the former host of Carl Anthony Payne that will be launching um, as well. I've just been promoted to a distinguished full professor at George Mason University. Um, and if okay. I use, you know what, where I see myself, um, I believe I connect best out in, you know, and among folk. Um, I don't believe I'll ever be in a formalized chief position again, but um, being on the lecture circuit, panel discussions, moving those agendas forward, um, consulting. Those are the kind of things that really interest me and the the entire time um, really working hard to make sure that we pay attention and mentor the next group of individuals that have come along. Mentoring has been a part of my narrative since I started because I had no formal mentors. There was no one who looked like me um, that was ahead of right. me. Um, so making sure that people could see themselves in these spaces and places, um, was extremely important for me, you know, and hopefully in five years, you know, I'm on, uh, you know, I'm on vacation, I'd have retired right. from three jobs and now I got five more. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> have you ever thought about running for office? So, you know what? I get asked that all the time when I run for office and, um, you know, I've taken enough. I've taken enough it. public hits. Totally I've taken enough public hits. Like my stuff is out there. Like my laundry is out there. So if you ever want to know anything about me, you there's 250 pages of Google about me out there. Mm. You know, um, I've been asked several times to do that, and 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 in all humility, um, I'm not going anywhere that God doesn't lead me. And you know, because that I is. say it all the time, you know. A man in his heart. We plan our own course, right? But God is the one who ordains my steps. So wherever God is leading me um, and would trust me to be in the next position, um, that's where I'll go. How about that? And that's exciting because it's almost like someone is behind you, pushing you. And it's like, it, to me, it's free. Like if you can turn um, yourself over to a higher power, where you're not worrying, you're not stressing, you just know that you have purpose and you're doing what you're supposed to be doing. And it's exciting for the outlook because you don't know what could happen because you're really not in control. I mean, you're in control of yourself, but as far as the future, you don't know. So it, it's exciting to live that way. I wish more people could get there, but I think you got to live and go through some storms to get there. But yes, yes, yes. What does it say? I'm so excited to see where you end up going in these next couple of years. I'm gonna, you know, this podcast has been amazing. Not only because I get to run my mouth, but the 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 people, and a lot of that is from Ken Johnson, mean mean online. But the people that I've had an opportunity to talk to, you can read all day about somebody online, but until you're looking at them face to face and sharing and talking about things that are important. It's just, to me, it's one of the most, um, I, I'm most grateful for is the people, the people part. I miss that, to be able to communicate with people that, you know, have the same ideas and come with, you know, the mindset of purpose and 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 changing and impacting lives. So 
I just wanted to say thank you. Oh my goodness. It has been an extreme pleasure talking to you. I admire your courage. You are so courageous because girl, I don't know if I could have, you know what I mean? <laughs> Look, I'm from St. Louis. I don't know. <laughs> so, so my joke is, as we end this up is don't ever sleep this sister because I'm pulling something out of my Louis bag. That's all I'm talking There it is. And it ain't always lip gloss. It ain't always okay. lip gloss. So. I'm going to let you know. <laughs> I believe in the 2A2. Don't, it's just not for you, boo -boo. Never say I'm from the 412, right? You better know. You better know. Let them know. <laughs> let them know. Oh, my goodness. This is great. Well, you said, when is your podcast going to be? When, when will you be taking over hosting duties? July 20th is our launch. I'll be launching at the National Organization of Black Law Enforcement Annual Conference in Cleveland, Ohio. Um, we'll be doing some live podcasts from there. And... You know, um, we're, we're going to get it started. So hopefully the promo and the press release will, will come out soon. I'm looking forward to it. If there is anything that I can do in terms of promoting what you're doing, letting people know, just let me know, please. Kenny's got all my information and I'm going to definitely um, just looking out for you because you're definitely a woman that I think more women, not just black women, but women in general need to hear your story because girl, you are a true survivor and a fighter. And I just commend you for, for your courage, honestly. I just, it's just truly, truly amazing. And I'm, I feel blessed and, and grateful that I had the opportunity this short amount of time to talk to you. So thank you so much, Dr. Rochelle Brackney, girl. I. I could tell you, I got to tell you this before I let you go. When I first saw you online, I was like, because you know how, you know, we, you know, you see somebody, you'd be like, and then when I see you face to face, I was like, why does she look like my kinfolk? It's just crazy <laughs> to me where you can see, you can see somebody. And then once you connect with them and talk, you'd be like, that's my kinfolk right, right there. I'm like, it's just that like talking to one of my cousins, folk. right? This is literally like right. talking to one of my cousins. Um, Exactly. I, 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 I have enjoyed it. Thank you so really much, Miss Olivia. Thank you, Thank you so for much. having me. You've been a joy. Absolutely. And good luck to you. That's going to do it for another episode of Olivia Fox Podcast. Tell a friend. I'm telling y'all, y'all missing it. We've got nothing but dynamic, winners, successful, trailblazing people on this podcast. And I feel blessed to be here. So tell a friend to tell a friend, the Olivia Fox Podcast. And we We'll talk again soon. The Olivia Fox Podcast is produced and hosted by Olivia Fox. Executive producer, Ken Johnson. Get the Olivia Fox Podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, or wherever you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, comment, and rate. Follow Olivia Fox on IG at Olivia Fox Radio. Follow the Mean Old Line Media Podcast Network at Mean Old Line Media. Get the Mean Old Line Media app in the App Store or on Google Play. The Olivia Fox Podcast is a Mean Old Line Media production. Waiting on a tax return? Hopefully it ends up in your hands. Fraudulent tax returns due to identity theft increased by 30% in 2023. If you're in a bind this tax season, LifeLock can help. Our U.S.-based restoration specialists are experts dedicated to helping solve your identity theft issues. And all LifeLock plans are backed by the Million Dollar Protection Package. So we'll reimburse you up to the limits of your plan if you lose money due to identity theft. Help protect your information this tax season with LifeLock. Save up to 25% your first year at LifeLock.com aware.